All right, Joel read our passage, John uh, 10, 22 through 31. And so you can look that up. I'm going to read it uh, kind of just a couple of verses, but we're going to be oriented and anchored in this text. So you can look it up in your Bible, on your app. If you're using your phone, let me encourage you to just put it on airplane mode, all right? So no distracting texts come in, no Facebook Come, alerts come in, you don't um, get worried about whatever comes across uh, the interweb. So here's the word God, the scriptures, verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered and said, I told you, and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you didn't believe. And then verse 30, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. We want to declare this morning that in a, in a world where we have all kinds of ideas about who God is and what God is like, in a world in which we, we tend to make God in our own image, we tend to make God look like us and respond like us, in a world that... Uh, that wants to make God in such a way that meets and fulfills our own needs and our own desires or, or takes revenge in the ways that we want to take revenge. In, in this kind of world, I want to proclaim that Jesus shows us what God is really like. That's really good news, all right? Jesus shows us what God is really like, and he invites us to follow this God, the God he reveals in an eternal kind of life, here and now forever. I'll unpack that a little bit. But Jesus shows us what God is really like, and he invites us to follow a Jesus-looking God in an eternal kind of life that is here and now forever. I uh, got to hang out with this kid named Preston. He's a 12-year-old uh, kid when I was a youth pastor. And I didn't know him very well. His parents visited the church I was pastoring at just a little bit. They weren't really a church-type family, but they were really concerned for their son, Preston. Preston was like experiencing a lot of depression, a lot of loneliness. He was failing in school. He was really struggling. And they were, their heart was breaking for their son, Preston. And they asked, as the youth pastor, hey, would you fix him? Um, that's what they said, but I didn't. Because you can't. But I spent some time with Preston. And uh, we were playing video games, because that's what pastors do. We get to call it work. And uh, I was playing video games with Preston, and we started talking about God. And he was smart, a smart kid, and he thought pretty deeply about things. And I think that's why he felt so deeply. He thought deeply, and he said, you know, Jesse, I think God is like me with my sea monkeys. 
I've told this story before, I can remember. But I think God is like me when I had sea monkeys. Do you guys know what sea monkeys are? Like, they come in a package, I think. I've never had them, but, but they, they like come, they're like living organisms, but they're dormant until they come in contact with water. And so you can put them in water. This is how I understand they work. Uh, you, come, you put them in water, and they start, it activates their life cycle or whatever, and they start to grow, and they become living organisms, and kind of like, I think they're like shrimp-like creatures. Anyone? Yeah? All right, good. Thank you, man. I need some validation. Uh, you did. Cool. All right. So they grow, and, and Preston says, um, yeah, I think God is like me with my sea monkeys. I got sea monkeys once, and I got super excited about these sea monkeys, and I got an aquarium, a tank, and I filled it with gravel, multicolored gravel, and I put little plants in there, and I put a little castle, and I filled it with water, and it was this beautiful uh, habitat that these sea monkeys could live in and thrive in, and I was super excited. I put them in there, and they grew, and I fed them, but then... I kind of got bored. And I kind of lost interest in the sea monkeys. And so I kind of just forgot about them. And I came back a few weeks later, and the tank is all green. And the sea monkeys, they haven't had anything to eat, so they're eating each other. He said it was cool. But they were eating each other. And he said, I just got bored, and I think that's how God is. This is what he said. God is like me with the sea monkeys that he was kind of interested and excited to make this really cool world. He created us. He made a nice habitat for us. But then he just got bored. And he left us. And now it's like tooth and nail, tooth, claw, and nail, whatever you say. And, and, and we're destroying each other. And we're left alone. And he doesn't care. Now, this was Preston's view of, of God. This was his idea. This is how his imagination was stirred as he thought about God. And, and it affected how he lived his life. It affected how he uh, was able to cope with his circumstances and his, and his hurt. He was lonely. He was depressed. He was uh, failing in school, and he felt alone. He felt like there was no one outside of himself that could like process things with him. His parents' marriage was just failing, and he was, he was struggling. See, our imagination of what God is like is formed and shaped by our experiences, by our encounters with other people, by what we are told and what we are taught. And we all have these ideas and views of what God is like and who God is. And they impact how we live our life. A.W. Tozer, I don't have this on the screen, but you may have heard this quote. It's, it's, it's really profound. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of humanity will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Did you hear that? No religion will be greater than its idea of God. He says, Worship is pure or base, high or low, as the worshiper 
entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the most important question before the church is always God. And the most portentous, portentous fact about any man is not what he or she at a given time may say or do, but what he or she in his deep heart conceives God to be like. All right? He's saying the most important thing about you is what comes to mind when you think about God. And what you think about God determines how you will live your life. And what the church thinks about God, what a community thinks about God, will impact how they treat one another, how they cope with suffering, how they treat other people, how they define themselves. And he ends this way. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward the mental image of God in our minds. Does that make sense? We tend to move towards, our life is drawn to, it starts to take the shape of the God that we worship. Our view of God determines our life and how we live. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always, the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. So what does your life, I just want you to ask yourself this question, what does your life reveal about your view of God? What do you conceive God to be like? Who is God? Our imaginations for what God is like and how we are to live in light of this God are formed and shaped by many, many different things. Like I said, our experiences, positive or negative, how someone taught us to read the Bible, who, how people parented us, whatever it is, we, our view of God is shaped by all kinds of things. But here's the problem. Unfortunately, our view and understanding of who God is is rarely shaped by the person and work and words and way of Jesus. I mean, this was my experience. I, I, I knew Jesus to be my Savior, but I didn't know that was like the lens I should view God through. Like I knew he connected me to God, but I didn't know he explained God. I didn't think of it that way. We've been taught to go to philosophy or to logic or to our experience and, and kind of piece together what God might be like, but God in his mercy has made himself known and he's made himself most clearly known through Jesus. So we declare that Jesus has shown us what God is really like. And the good news is that he invites us to follow the God that he reveals and to experience an eternal kind of life here and now. Let's look at the text. Verse 22 through 24. Um, the Jewish leaders have a question for Jesus. They want to know, who are you? When are you going to come out with it? Are you the Messiah or not? Are you the Son of God or not? Are you the Savior of the world or not? Are you going to redeem Israel or not? Don't keep us in suspense any longer. Come out with it and, and let's get busy. And they ask him this question 
Um, in the context of a religious festival, this is they're celebrating Hanukkah. Everyone heard of Hanukkah? What's that candle called? Anyone know? Any of the kids know what the candle is called? The the eight the, the eight like, what is it? The menorah. The menorah. Sounds good. All right. What are they celebrating? It's dark here. You guys are welcome to turn on lights. There's lights behind you. Lights over there. They're speaking of candles. The, the, I've got some. There you go. Perfect. All right. So Hanukkah. This is what Hanukkah is celebrating. All right. They are celebrating and retelling the story of a guy named Judas Maccabeus. All right. Judas Maccabeus is known as he had a nickname. He was called Judah the Hammer, and he's called the Hammer because he destroyed his enemies without mercy. His enemies like fell underneath the hammer of his justice. And he raised up a revolt. This was in 165 BC, just a couple hundred years before Jesus comes on the scene. And Israel celebrates Judas Maccabeus, Judah the Hammer, every year to remember how he led a violent revolt to rout out the, the enemy. And the, the enemy was led, it's called the Seleucids. They're the predecessors to the Romans, okay? They're this powerful people that took over Jerusalem took over the Israelite people and were oppressing them horrifically. This is how bad it got. They just defiled their gods. The temple for the Jewish people was the most important place that you could be. It was where the presence of God was. And as you may remember, like only the holiest of holy people could be in the holiest of holy place. And they had all these rules. And what this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes IV did... He was, the, he was this um, bad guy. And he came, he took over Jerusalem, he occupied them, and he set up an altar to worship Zeus right in the middle of the temple. And then he brought in pigs and slaughtered pigs in the temple of God. He defiled the temple. He was cruel, he was mean, and he, the, the people of Israel were oppressed. And so Hanukkah celebrates and remembers that Judas Maccabeus, Judah the Hammer, came and raised up a violent revolt and took back the temple through years of war and regained um, freedom for the Israelites. And so they would have been telling these stories, they would have been remembering, and they would have been longing and looking for another Messiah, another Savior, another leader that would lead and lead Israel out of oppression, out of captivity, just like Judah the Hammer. That's the kind of Messiah, that's the kind of God that they were expecting, looking for, longing for. Someone to come and kick some Roman tail. All right? And so... Jesus responds to their question. They're like, are you that guy? Because you're doing a lot of stuff, but I don't see any hammers. Like, we need to get busy. We need to get busy kicking the Romans out. Are you the Messiah? And Jesus reveals what God is really like. He says, I've told you already, but you didn't believe. The works that I do bear witness about me. How I'm living my life and moving through the world bear witness that I and the Father are one 
that I do these things in my Father's name, that I carry the agenda of God. And you don't believe and you don't hear me because you are looking for a different kind of God. You define God in a different kind of way and I don't meet your expectations, right? And so they can't hear. Let's look at what Jesus has done up to this point just in John real quick. Um, the Gospel of John is where we are. Jesus has said up to this point, and the religious leaders likely heard him say all these things and do these things. He has said, I am the good shepherd. God was always called the shepherd of his people in the Old Testament. I am the good shepherd, he says. I am the light of the world, he has said. I am the bread of life, he has said. I am the way, the truth, and the life, he has said. Would you just like be a little more clear, Jesus? Like, who are you? What has he done? He's turned water into really, really good wine at a wedding to show the abundance of the kingdom. He has healed the sight of a blind man, like miraculously and instantly. He has cleared out the temple of injustices. He has walked on water and calmed a storm with the word of his mouth, right? He has fed over 5,000 people with just a couple fish and a few pieces of bread. And he has rescued the life of a woman who was caught in adultery and the men, the religious leaders, were about to stone her to death for her sin. And he stood in between and said, go, sin no more. I don't condemn you. None of these will kill you. And he saved her life. So Jesus says, I am being plain. I'm speaking plainly. I am the Messiah. I just don't fit your expectations for what God is supposed to look like. What his Messiah is supposed to look like. Unlike Judas the hammer, I don't come wielding a hammer to crush my enemies. I come to come underneath a hammer and to be pierced with nails. And to not kill my enemies, but die for them. He has said, on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, I have come, you've heard it said, to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say, love your neighbor and love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. See, Jesus didn't fit their idea and their framework and their imagination for what God's son would look like. And they missed him. And so, Jesus shows us what God is really like. And then he invites us to follow him, this God, in an eternal kind of life. Here and now, forever. Alright? Here and now, forever. So let's look at that. Verse 27, real quick. Jesus says that those who follow me, they're like my sheep, my sheep hear my voice and they know, I know them and they follow me. They follow me. And he, whoever follows me receives eternal life. Now here's one of the ways we need to shed our conceptions of, of God that we've been handed down in a salvation. We tend to think of salvation and eternal life as purely a future event, don't we? I think, I used to, where we're like, Jesus saves me from my sin and I get to cash that check when I die, when I get to go to heaven. It's like, it's insurance 
for a future date. My faith in Jesus is a down payment for a future life outside of this earth, salvation from this world. But the kind of life that Jesus offers is an eternal kind of life. Right? It's an eternal kind of life. Not, it's, it's life forever, but it's a life that starts now. It's a heavenly life. We're taught to pray, your kingdom come, what? On earth as it is in heaven. What Jesus brings is the kingdom of God to be experienced here and now on earth as it is in heaven. Now, it's an already not yet. There's a tension there, right? But the eternal life with God begins now. The love and the joy and the peace and the patience and the kindness and the goodness and the faithfulness and the self-control can begin to live in our lives and we can begin to experience love and peace and joy. Now, He, he offers us, He invites us to follow God and to experience an eternal kind of life right now. And so that's what he invites us to. He shows us what God is really like, and then he invites us to live life with him. All right, then last verse, verse 30. The last two verses. Verse 30, Jesus just brings it home. In case they weren't listening, right? The Father and I are one. God and Jesus are perfectly united in purpose. They are perfectly united in their agenda, in their desire, in their works. Jesus does nothing but what the Father calls him to do. So Jesus shows us what God is really like. God looks like Jesus. I want you to hear this. God looks like Jesus. God has always looked like Jesus. There's never been a time when God did not look like Jesus. We've not always known this, but now we do. Jesus has shown us what God is really like. And we can follow a Jesus-looking God. And we can be a Jesus-looking people. And we can love the world in a Jesus-looking kind of way. That's the good news. And so we can respond in one of two ways to this, all right? Look, just like the text, how did they respond we can respond by following Jesus as one of his sheep or stoning Jesus as one of his enemies. Because, and this is our tendency as human beings. We get violently committed to our ideas and conceptions of God. So much so that we want to kill and murder the God that looks like Jesus. We our tendency is to pick up stones to kill the God that doesn't fit our understanding of who God is. And this is what the religious leaders do. They pick up stones to kill God revealed in Jesus because he doesn't fit their understanding of who God is. And so, who is the God that you worship? What does your life say about what you believe about who God is. As I was thinking and praying through this passage and allowing it to like hit my life, I was praying quite a bit about it, just wrestling with this good news that Jesus revealed, that God revealed in Jesus confronts my ideas, my idols of 
of, of my false ideas of who God is, and I've been asking him to expose the areas of my life where uh, I, I was worshiping a false god. And I started praying, and as I started praying, I just started thinking about, well, how am I living? In what ways am I living? Where am I struggling? And how does that sh- betray how I look and view God incorrectly? And I began to think, even through a dream last night that I had that was pretty um, powerful, it kind of woke me up, I realized that I tend to use the power and influence that I have to control people and situations rather than to serve and support them. I tend to use my, my influence, my power, not from underneath, like Jesus did, but from over and above, especially in my family. I try to like control the house dynamic so that it can like live and look like I think it should. It fits my kind of the shape of Jesse's vision of the, of the house. And I'm really nice about it, guys. I'm super nice. But it's, still, it's manipulative. It's coercive. It's controlling. Rather than coming up, using my power and, and my influence to come underneath my wife and my children and support them and encourage them and empower them, I tend to like try to manipulate it and control. And when I started thinking about that, it started, it's connected, it kind of clicked that that's how I view God working in the world. I view him as using his power and his authority and his influence that's kind of above and over humanity and the world, like controlling every specific thing to, to kind of coerce and manipulate his will and his way in the world. Now, this comes from certain theological frameworks that I've been, have been exposed to and things like that. And I'm not saying that God isn't sovereign, but I'm saying God is sovereign in a way that looks like Jesus. All right? God is not sovereign in a way that uses power and influence to control and to impose his will. He uses it in a way like Jesus does. He comes underneath to support and to encourage and to empower, to lift up, not to push down. Are you tracking with me? That's how I'm repenting and believing in this. I'm, I'm repenting of trying to control rather than encourage and serve my family. And my view of God has to change. It has to look more like Jesus if I'm going to change that way, if I want to live a Jesus-looking kind of life. So what about you? What is God stirring in you? The, The Holy Spirit is always speaking. He's always encouraging. He's always convicting. He's always challenging. What area of your life, what view of God do you have that doesn't fit a Jesus shape. It isn't Jesus shape. What ideas about God don't look like Jesus? And that you are dedicated to them. You hold to them, right? So, let me ask you, let me just give you some thoughts to kind of stimulate your imagination. If you view God to be kind of this uh, distant deity, like my buddy Preston did, he like created it, and step back and got disinterested. You, you, you might think of God that way, and it might reveal. You might go throughout your most of your day without really thinking about how God plays into the picture, how God might 
um, want you to respond to certain situations. You might be what we call like a practical atheist. Like you believe in God, but practically doesn't make much of a difference in how you live your life, how you work, how you parent. When you experience uh, a stressor or a strain, like you try to figure it out yourself. You feel like the burden of fixing your life is all on you. You might have an incorrect view of God as someone distant rather than someone present. Present, involved in every area of your life, with you, in the mundane and in the important things. You might have this view of God as, as kind of a, uh, a, a, a dreading, a, a dreading, a dreadful, dreadful judge. A dreadful judge. Who's just like waiting. He's so concerned with holiness. And he uses his power to like punish you and spank you like every time you mess up. And he's just waiting for you to mess up. And every you view every trial in your life or every struggle in your life as from the hand of God, as like an act of discipline because you're not worthy, right? And he's got to sanctify you and he's got to purge you and he's, he's a, a judge, a harsh judge that's just waiting to discipline and to punish you. You might struggle to experience the love of God. You might feel this overwhelming sense of guilt all the time, or that you are not good enough, or that bad things happen from God, rather than God being with you as bad things happen. See, God works all things together for good. He doesn't cause all things together for good. That's what I believe. I don't think that as we look at Jesus, how does Jesus challenge our ideas? of how God uses his power and authority. How is he with us in pain? You might think God is a doting grandparent, all right? He's just there to give you milk and cookies all the time, all right? And give you what you need, what you want, but not ever challenge you or speak into your life. And you only go to him when you need something, rather than to be with him and enjoy his presence. Whatever it is, there's a million different ways we can misunderstand God and have misunderstandings of who he is and live our lives in ways that hurt us and others as a result. But let me, we will be okay if you allow Jesus to form and to shape and to challenge your ideas about who God is. Cling to what is true about Jesus, whatever that is, and start there. Trust Jesus, follow Jesus, allow Jesus to be the starting point of your faith and of your life and of your way. Because Jesus reveals what God is really like. God looks like Jesus. And he invites us to follow that kind of God in an eternal kind of life right now. So let's respond to this. Would you guys stand? And there's a prayer response there, Seth. And we will continue to um, worship in response to this. But here's a prayer that we can pray together. I just want you to be asking yourself this question this week. What about my who God is that I believe? What does not fit into the shape of Jesus? So let's pray this together. May our lives be shaped by a Jesus-looking God. May we be a Jesus-looking people that serve the world in a Jesus-looking way. Holy Spirit, reveal to me the God I have invented and help me to follow the God revealed in Jesus. All right, let's pray and worship this Jesus.